0: This is episode 103 of the Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled, Typhoid Mary, a Believe It or Not Story. This episode is part of our daily or near daily series of episodes during the pandemic. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show. And thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. In honor of April Fool's Day, I want to tell the story of Typhoid Mary, this believe-it-or-not story that is part horror, partly absurd, part dark comedy, and brings up some interesting work-related issues, including things like sick leave and the need to check references and what happens when an employee is killing off her employer's. Let's talk about some biology first. Typhoid Mary was named that because she was a carrier of typhoid fever, but she herself was asymptomatic. Typhoid fever is rare in the United States, but it affects about 22 million people worldwide. It causes symptoms such as high fever, headache, weakness, fatigue, abdominal pain, and it leads to hundreds of thousands of deaths each year. Scientists and physicians have known for decades that these bacteria, Salmonella typhi, accumulate in the gallbladder. In fact, the most commonly accepted treatment of chronic typhoid infection is to remove the gallbladder, and that will play into our story in an interesting way. Uh, In case you're like me and weren't quite sure, the gallbladder is a small, hollow organ where bile is stored and concentrated before it's released into the small intestine. And in humans, the pear-shaped gallbladder lies beneath our liver. Humans who harbor these bacterial communities in their gallbladders, even if they don't have symptoms, are able to infect others with active typhoid fever, especially in places that have poor sanitation. So in other words, as long as those bacteria live inside you, you will always be able to infect others for the rest of your life. And there's a new study Uh, that suggests that bacteria that cause typhoid fever collect in tiny but persistent communities on gallstones, which makes the infection particularly hard to fight in so-called carriers. And a gallstone is a stone formed within the gallbladder out of bile components, and most people with gallstones never have symptoms. Some interesting considerations come up in situations like this. Mary was held under quarantine. She was imprisoned for 26 years, and we'll get into what led to that. But it's worth thinking about what powers are given to the government with regards to issues of public health, particularly when you are depriving someone of their freedom and also their livelihood, their uh, ability to make money. And I think now we're seeing pockets of overreach or clumsiness or ham-fistedness now during our own shelter-in-place guidelines. Uh, but it's very clear that bad things can happen that adversely affect someone like Mary, who was impoverished and alone. So let's tell her a story. She was born in Northern Ireland and migrated to the U.S., in 1883 or 1884. And she found work as a cook. And from 1900 to 1907, uh, her full name is Mary Mallon, by the way. So she worked as a cook in the New York City area for seven families. And in 1900, uh, she worked in uh, a place in New York where within two weeks of her employment, the residents developed typhoid fever. And back then, typhoid fever killed about 20,000 Americans a year, usually by contaminated drinking water. In 1901, she moved to Manhattan, where members of the family for whom she worked also developed fever and diarrhea, and in fact, the laundress died. Mallon then went to work for a lawyer and left after seven of the eight people in that household became ill. Oops. She went to work as a cook for, a wealthy, uh, for the family of a wealthy New York banker whose name was Charles Warren, and when they rented a house in Oyster Bay on Long Island uh, for the summer of 1906, she went along. From August 27 to September 3, six of the 11 people in the family came down with typhoid fever. And at that time, the disease was considered somewhat unusual in Oyster Bay, at least according to some doctors who practiced there. Uh, So Mary went on to take a different job, but after she had left in 1906, the Oyster Bay family hired a sanitation engineer with the New York Department of Health named George Soper to investigate because they were worried that nobody would rent that house since there had been typhoid fever in it. And George Soper came to pursue Mary as vigorously as Inspector Javert did in his quarry in Les Miserables. He suspected her right away because she had come to the house three weeks before anyone got sick, which was the average uh, incubation period for typhoid. He ended up publishing the results of his investigation in the Journal of American Medical Association, and he wrote, it was found that the family changed cooks on August 4th. This was about three weeks before the typhoid epidemic broke out. The new cook, Malin, remained in the family only a short time and left about three weeks after the outbreak occurred. Uh, Malin was described as an Irish woman about 40 years of age, tall, heavy, and single, and she seemed to be in perfect health. Uh, Mary continued to change jobs, and similar occurrences happened in three more households. I just have to raise the question here about why there weren't some references that were checked. Um, Perhaps they were, and no one knew that she had been making people sick, but it does seem as though somehow this should have been picked up on by the employers. She was subsequently hired by more families, and more outbreaks followed her. Now, Soper was on her. And he discovered that a female Irish cook who fit her description was involved in all of these outbreaks by doing his uh, detective work. He was unable to locate her because she generally left after an outbreak began without giving a forwarding address. Soper learned of an active outbreak in a penthouse on Park Avenue and discovered that Malin was the cook, and two of the household servants were hospitalized, and the daughter of the family actually died of typhoid. I remember, this is uh, before antibiotics. When Soper approached Malin about her possible role in spreading typhoid, she adamantly rejected his request uh, for urine and stool samples, And so he decided to compile a five-year history of her employment and found that of the eight families that had hired her as a cook, members of seven claimed to have contracted typhoid fever. He took a doctor with him to go see her again, um, but he was again turned away. And uh, she angrily rejected anything to do with him and locked herself in the bathroom until he left. He reported her to the New York City health inspector, and claimed that she was a carrier. They sent an ambulance for her, and ended up taking her away by force with three policemen. When she opened the door and saw them on the doorstep, she fled and ran out the back. And it took them three hours to find her. And a doctor, the doctor who was uh, who came with the ambulance, said she fought and struggled and cursed, according to Janet Brooks who wrote a story called The Sad and Tragic Life of Typhoid Mary. She says that Mary denied that she was responsible for anyone's sickness or death and refused to recognize the authority of science or government to label her a menace to society. In prison, uh, she was forced to give stool and urine samples, and authorities suggested that her gallbladder be removed because they believed that the typhoid bacteria resided there, but she refused. And she said that she didn't believe she carried the disease, and she also said she was unwilling to cease working as a cook. Under the Greater New York City Charter, she was held in isolation for three years at the Riverside Hospital for Communicable Diseases, which is located on the remote North Brother Island in the East River. She told a reporter, by this time she'd gained some notoriety, and she told a reporter, I never had typhoid in my life and have always been healthy. Why should I be banished like a leper and compelled to live in solitary confinement with only a dog for a companion? And she filed a writ of habeas corpus to secure her release. Eventually, the New York State Commissioner of Health decided that she should not be kept in isolation and that she could be freed if she agreed to stop working as a cook and took reasonable steps to prevent transmitting typhoid to others. So on 1910, uh, she agreed that she was, quote, prepared to leave her occupation, that of a cook, and would give the assurance by affidavit that she would, upon her release, take such hygienic precautions as would protect those with whom she came in contact from infection. She was released from quarantine and returned to the mainland. Upon her release, she, was, she got a job as a laundress, which paid less than as a cook. And after several kind of unsuccessful years working as a laundress, she changed her name to Mary Brown and returned uh, to her former occupation, as being a cook, despite having been uh, instructed not to. And for the next five years, she worked in a number of kitchens. And wherever she went, there were outbreaks of typhoid. But she changed jobs frequently, and Soper, who was still on her path, was, was unable to find her. In 1915, she started another major outbreak, this time at the Sloan Hospital for Women in New York City. 25 people were infected, and two people died. And she left again, but this time the police were able to find her, and this time they arrested her. Uh, The public health authorities returned her to quarantine back on North Brother Island in 1915, and at that point she was still unwilling to have her gallbladder removed. She remained confined for the remainder of her life. She became a minor celebrity and was occasionally interviewed. Uh, Everyone was told not to accept anything from her. And eventually, she, did, uh, she was allowed to work in the island's uh, laboratory. She spent the rest of her life in quarantine at the Riverside Hospital. Six years before her death, she was paralyzed with a stroke. And then in 1938, she died of pneumonia at the age of 69. And a postmortem found evidence of live typhoid bacteria, indeed, in her gallbladder. By the time she died, New York health officials had identified more than uh, 400 other carriers of the salmonella bacteria, but no one else had been forcibly confined, so her circumstances were quite unusual. I want to close here with a love your brothers and sisters message. It wasn't Mary's fault that she was sick or that she was a carrier. Her behavior was ignorant and irresponsible. I don't know. She uh, probably felt as though her own liberty was uh, being downgraded. She may not have understood what was happening. She might have had mental problems. She might have felt as though she had no other choice, that this was the only way for her to make a living or have a life. Regardless, sick people deserve to be taken care of. And one danger of quarantining people is the stigmatization of the disease and those who have it. So we can hearken back to the leper colonies when people who weren't even particularly contagious were isolated, and the AIDS epidemic drove people underground in panic and fear, which led to really additional problems. Today, I notice that people around me seem to be thinking very carefully before they disclose that they might be sick or have tested positive for COVID-19. I don't blame them. Communities are sending out very hostile messages now to people who think they are a threat. A woman on Twitter who lives in Hawaii sent out a message uh, telling us not to bring our infected asses to the islands. And people in my little community in the eastern Sierra are calling for roadblocks and forced testing in an attempt to keep out the coronavirus. Some vigilantes in Maine cut down a tree, and tried to barricade some people into forced quarantine who were living next door to them because they had out-of-state license plates. The Coast Guard had to intervene. So I want to close with a message that we need to take care of sick people. We need to protect healthy people. And let's try and stay informed and calm and rational. At least that's what I'm trying to do. And I hope that works for you, too. That's it, everybody. You've made it through another episode of Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work. During the pandemic, we'll be changing our format in honor of those who are quarantined or working on the front lines. We'll put out shorter shows on a daily or near daily basis early in the morning to start your day on a positive and interesting note. We'll be considering work-related issues relevant while COVID-19 is impacting the world. If you have a question or a comment or a message for our listeners, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us through the website, discreetguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T, where you can also find other resources about working better together. Thank you for joining my quest to improve our workplaces, our work lives, and our lives in general. And thanks for listening. We look forward to returning to our old format when the world has returned to a more normal state. In the meantime, please hang in there, stay safe, and know that I care about you.